Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season two. The shootings at White House Farm, justice denied. So what's new in season two? Well, we'll still be writing and narrating episodes on the evidence, but we're introducing more discussions from the team on various elements of Jeremy's case, as well as interviews with experts in law and forensics. Other interviews will feature those working in the miscarriage of justice field and those whose wrongful convictions have already been overturned. In addition, we'll also cover other potential miscarriage of justice cases both in the UK and internationally. This will help listeners to see the common parallels in these cases and broaden their understanding of the issues facing those who maintain innocence. If you work on a case or you're a victim of a miscarriage of justice that you'd like us to feature on our podcast, then please contact Yvonne by email. The address is yvonnehartley at hotmail.co.uk. Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. My name is Yvonne Hartley from the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign, and I am joined by my colleague, Philip Walker. Good morning, Philip. Hi, Yvonne. I hope you're all right. I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Today, we're going to talk about three very important phone calls and the evidence that we now have in relation to these. The first call is the call that Neville Bambi made to Jeremy. The second call is the telephone call that Neville Bambi made to the police at 3.26am. And the third call is the one made by Jeremy to the police at 3.36am. There's been a lot of uh, contention and guesswork regarding these telephone calls over the years, so today we want to set the matter straight. Today, we will begin by discussing the call that Jeremy says he received from his father at approximately 10 past three, quarter past three in the morning of the 7th of August. And we will tell you why the police undermine this evidence. Uh, It's quite nonsensical, their assertions on why this call, they say, didn't happen. So, Philip, would you like to explain a little bit further about this call? Yeah, this call is absolutely crucial, uh, as Yvonne said, that the police deny that it ever happened. Uh, And the reason they're so firm in that position is that if it did happen, then there is no doubt that Jeremy is innocent, because it would have been logistically impossible for him to have committed the crime. Uh, The police accept that he was at his home in Goldhanger uh, at the time, just after 3 a.m., uh, and therefore, there is no possibility that he could have got to White House Farm, committed the crime and got back to his house in Goldhanger in time to get in his car and go back to White House Farm uh, and arrive there a couple of minutes after the first police officers did. So that, that's why this call is absolutely pivotal in, in the story. And what Jeremy says is that sometime between 3.10 and 3.15 in the morning, He received a call from his father in which his father told him that uh, his sister had got hold of one of the guns in the house. uh, And he was clearly very concerned about the situation. But obviously, from the fact that he was talking to Jeremy, appeared to be uninjured at that time. And he asked Jeremy to come over to the farm to help him sort the situation out. At the end of the call, uh, the call was cut off. 
uh, and Jeremy immediately tried to ring uh, Neville back, but the, the phone was uh, engaged when he tried to do that. So th that is the broad outline of, of what happened. It is. The Essex police, though, needed to undermine the fact at trial and prior to trial that um, Jeremy had actually received this call from his father. At trial, it was said that Jeremy was lying about this and that it had never happened. And therefore, the jury shouldn't believe anything he said because he was lying about this. Well, in the first instance, there was a letter sent by Peter Simpson, who was the assistant chief constable, to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And this letter was dated the 25th of September, 1985. It followed a meeting between the DPP and Ainsley and others in which they were making a decision on whether to charge Jeremy or not with the murders. Well, this letter set out reasons why Essex police believed Jeremy was responsible. And one of the factors in the letter states, in particular, you will note that Bamber's account of events of that night are entirely negated by the evidence of the blood found in the silencer, coupled with the pathologist's evidence that two bullet wounds in the mouth would have made it physically impossible for Ralph Neville Bamber to have made the phone call to which Jeremy Bamber refers and around which his attempt to cause the authorities to believe it was a murder-suicide situation. Now, that's absolutely ridiculous because I had no idea whatsoever of any timescale of when injuries were received by any of the people in the house. They have no timescale of Neville having received these injuries, preventing him from using the telephone. Yes, looking back later, it could be said that his injuries would have prevented him using a phone. And we accept that. But there is no evidence whatsoever what time Neville received these injuries. So he didn't tell Jeremy on the phone that he was injured in any way. He just said that his sister had gone berserk and had hold of uh, his gun. But, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous that Essex police have jumped to this conclusion to try and persuade the jury and to try and persuade the DPP that Jeremy was lying. There was absolutely no evidence whatsoever regarding what time Neville received any of his injuries, or in fact, anyone in the house for that matter. Further, we took this matter to the Criminal Cases Review Commission in 2010. And at paragraph 257 of their provisional statements of reasons, they said, had Ralph Neville Bamber already called the police it would have been likely to have mentioned this to his son in the course of his call to Jeremy. Now, that's two very peculiar things for the Criminal Cases Review Commission to say, because, because firstly, Neville called Jeremy before Neville called the police. So he couldn't have told Jeremy I've already rang the police because that hadn't happened at that time. And as well, Essex police have always contended that Jeremy was making it up about this call. So it seems to me that the CCRC were accepting of the fact that Jeremy had received this call, but were questioning the of why didn't Neville tell him when he rang the police, which seems rather peculiar. 
Yeah, but both of those instances are clearly cases of reverse engineering to try and squeeze the facts into their narrative. Uh, And both of them make assumptions that are are clearly flawed. Uh, As you say, the police had no idea when Neville received his injuries. Uh, And as Jeremy has said in all his accounts of that uh, phone call from his father, uh, Neville sounded concerned. Obviously, as you would do if somebody got hold of a gun and uh, and was clearly a little bit out of control, but he, right. obviously, he obviously hadn't been injured by that point, which is how he could come to be talking to Jeremy. Well, a further reason we can show that he wasn't injured at that time is the fact that he made a telephone call at 3.26am to Essex Police. Yes, which we'll, we'll come on to uh, a bit later. But, but just going back to uh, to Neville's call to Jeremy, everybody at first hearing just says, oh, well, obviously he was trying to create an alibi for himself if, if they are in the guilty camp. But in fact, when you look at it dispassionately, it would in fact have been an incredibly stupid thing to have done because it would not have created an alibi for him. It would actually have been tantamount to him sticking his hand in the air and said, I did it. Uh, And there are really three reasons why that's the case. Firstly, at the time, BT were installing digital equipment in the Morden Exchange. Um, And the Morden Exchange was the the one through which both the White House farm and the Goldhanger line went. Uh, And as they did during the rollout of, of this digital service, when they came to a new exchange to convert it, they used to do a small, I don't know, about 10%, I think, uh, of the numbers covered by that exchange just to make sure the technology was working and that everything was functioning okay. And it does actually appear that Jeremy's line had been converted because during the police investigation, they, they had specific information on other calls that he'd made from his house. They did so, it, didn't they, because they had phone records saying when he'd rung uh, numbers outside of the country. We know that for definite. Yeah, so clearly that facility was on his line. Now, their assertion that um, Jeremy would know there was no such record from White House Farm that could disprove the fact that a call had been made is clearly nonsense, uh, unless Jeremy had intimate knowledge of which lines at the BT Exchange had been converted, then it would have been very, very foolish for him to assert that uh, a call had been made from White House Farm when the police could have just gone down to BT and said, well, show us the records. And, and it later turned out that, in fact, the police destroyed some records which were listed as BT records of the White House Farm line that we strongly suspect were itemised call records. Yeah, they definitely did. And we will discuss those later in more depth once we talk about the two telephone calls made to PC West. Yeah, so that's that's the first reason why Jeremy would have been extremely foolish just to make up this, this telephone call from his father. Uh, the second is that had he committed the crime, he, he would have had to have left White House Farm probably by the latest at 2.30 in the morning in order to get back to, to Goldhanger, dispose of his bloodied clothing and clean up various things that would need to be hidden from the police and then ring the police at um, just after the call for, from Neville. Now, 
if he did that, then there was obviously a probably 45 to 50 minute window when the whole of his story depended on the phones at White House Farm still being functioning. That's right. So if he'd got back and in between 2.30 and whatever time, say 3.15, the phones at White House Farm had gone down, then his claim that he'd received a a call from his father would have clearly been shown to be absolute rubbish and tantamount to an admission of guilt. And we know that the lines did frequently go down at White House Farm, don't we, Philip? Because it was actually the weekend before the tragedies had been a lightning strike causing damage to the phones. Yes, that's right. I mean, initially when people hear this, they probably say, well, you know, clearly that's very unlikely. And and yes, it is. But the point is, it it was possible. And as Yvonne's just said, it actually happened about a week before the tragedy. There was a lightning strike that knocked out all the phones at White House Farm. Uh, And in fact, a BT engineer came two days before the tragedy on Monday the 5th to to take one of the damaged phones away. Uh, and that was very much would have been in Jeremy's thoughts because they had to rejiggle the phones at the farmhouse to uh, to to get over this um, malfunctioning phone. And it would have been something that he was very conscious of at the time. So, uh, again, it would have been extremely foolhardy for him to have made this call up. Exactly. And, and the final point that um, undermines the fact that this would be been a good plan for him to have claimed this is on the time of deaths, um, because if um, he was claiming that Neville was still alive at 3.10 when he received the phone call from him, which clearly you know, he, he was saying by highlighting that, if he'd left White House Farm at, by 2.30, then Neville would have probably been killed at least no later than probably 2.10, because Jeremy would have had to have staged the, the suicide seen after that, which I don't think he'd have been able to do if Neville had still been alive. So there would have been a difference in, in the time of deaths, the actual time of deaths, and the time of death that Jeremy was claiming by saying that um, Neville was still alive and uninjured at 310. And now, so, Philip, I think it's important that, that although chance of death were never established, Jeremy had no prior knowledge or anticipation yes. that that would not be done. That's right. Uh, that, that's the key point. The police are claiming that he, he meticulously planned this, this perfect crime. But in fact, you could only plan such a crime on the basis of what the police should have done. And they should have taken those body temperatures. So again, it, it just doesn't stack up. Well, that's if we go by the police. If the police had established times of death, then it would have proven what Jeremy was saying. Well, yes, yes, Neville, it would. That Neville was alive after the 326 call, which we're going to discuss shortly. So it would have proved that by 3.30 in the morning, Neville was still alive. So they could have established yeah. that, but for reasons only known until Essex Police... No body temperatures were ever taken at the scene. It was well, never we, established a time of death, which is just ridiculous in such circumstances, particularly when the deceased were... So you've got the adults, June Neville, had clearly more rigor mortis than Sheila had, which would have supported Jeremy had times of death been established. It would have, it would have prevented 
36 years of injustice have they done that one simple act at the scene on the day but they failed to do so yeah it, it was extremely poor police practice but it does highlight how certain they were that it was a murder suicide the fact they didn't do them i mean it was entirely wrong that they didn't but it, it just shows how uh, certain they were in in their initial analysis of, w- of what had happened absolutely it does Philip. so moving on to the call logs so as i say people have always disputed these call logs but we've got to make it clear before we start all that has happened is there was a document referred to as a c1 log and this is the document where the receiving officer notes down the details of the telephone call that he's received. So on the day in question, on the 7th of August, that was PC West, who was based at Chelsea. The other log that we've got, that we had disclosed to us, was that of Malcolm Bonnet, who was a civilian radio operator. So he was stationed just around the corner from West. But his role was to record all transmissions and radio messages that he received in relation to particular events. So the record we've got of what we say is Neville's call is noted by Bonnie on his log. So all the police have done is hidden from us the C1 log of Neville's call. And that's that he made to PC West. And that's the reason why it's been able to be misinterpreted all over these years because people are saying that Bonnet's log is just the notification from West, which it is, but it's quite clear that he was notified about Neville's call first. So these logs are available on our website, www.dermy-bamber.co.uk. You can see them there for yourself. To make it easier to understand and so that everybody can see the highlighted differences, Philip's going to read the information that's on Jeremy's call to West at 3.36am. And I'm going to read the information that was recorded by Bonnet on his log. And this absolutely proves that there were two separate phone calls. Now, the thing we need to make it clear as well, Philip, before we begin, is that these weren't dealt with at trial as they should have been only the log by bonnet was shown to the jury it has the court stamp on it and it on the court exhibits list it's the only one referred to so what happened at the trial is that in order to support the police's contention that there was a single call made at 326 the jury were only shown bonnet's log but when they were giving evidence, Bonnet was shown his log and West was shown his C1 log, which referred to Jeremy's call. But the jury never saw that one. And so this is how they were able to get away with it at the trial. There was sleight of hand went on in order to, to disguise the fact two calls had been received. Because above all else, Essex Police had to maintain there was a single call made by Jeremy at 3.26, and in fact, the judge instructed the jury, we must take 3.26 as the time of Jeremy's call to the police. 
Yeah, so th- this must have been rather confusing for the jury because there, there was quite a discussion, which we'll uh, look into a bit later, uh, about whether the call was 3.36 or 3.26. Uh, and from the documentation the, the jury were given, they must have been wondering, well, wh- where did this 3.36 time come from? Because they never saw the C1 form of um, Jeremy's call uh, that West took at that time. Um, so that must have been quite perplexing for them. It must have been, because there was no explanation given uh, at the trial, apart from PC West saying that he'd read the clock wrong. But before we just start, if I refer to the witness statement of Malcolm Bonney, Malcolm Bonney clearly states in his, his role, and he states that in his duties he recorded all times of radio and telephone messages I receive. I usually do this by looking at the large digital clock displayed high in the information room. I can say that the times are also displayed at the visual display units contained within the information room. So if West is trying to contend that he was looking at the clock and it was wrong, there are two clocks that therefore he must have said was wrong in his office, which is quite ridiculous. And the clocks were checked and all found to be accurate within a minute or two. So it doesn't hold any water anyway what um, PC West said regarding the times. And just before we start looking at the detail of the two calls, just to re-emphasise why this is so important, if the call from Neville to the police did take place at 3.26, as we firmly believe, then again, in a similar way to the call from Neville to Jeremy uh, before that, it, it means there is no question that Jeremy is innocent because it, again, would have been logistically impossible for him to have committed the crime. So this really is a key point. We're, we're not just quibbling about uh, technicalities here. That This is a, the heart of the case. Absolutely. So should we begin, Philip? Yes, why not? So... On the log recorded by Bonnet, the time stated is 03.26. Whereas on Jeremy's log, it says 3.36. On Malcolm Bonnet's log, it records daughter gone berserk. On Jeremy's call, it says sister Sheeda Bamba gone crazy and there is no heading. On Bonnet's log? It records the address as White House Farm, Tullison Darcy, daughter Sheila Bamber, aged 26 years, has got hold of one of my guns. And on Jeremy's, the caller is recorded as Mr Bamber, 9 Head Street, Goldhanger, which is Jeremy. And it says, Sister Sheila Bamber, aged 27, uh, has got hold of one of his father's guns. So there's clear discrepancies there over addresses, times, the relationship of the person, such as daughter, sister, and the age of Sheila. I mean, Essex police want the public to believe that Malcolm Bonnet recorded information passed to him from West about one single call, which was Jeremy's call, when all that information that Bonnet has recorded it's different. 
Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that if the jury had been shown the C1 form of Jeremy's call, it would have been totally apparent to them that there wasn't just one call, there were two. It, it, it's very, very obvious from the wording that that was the case. Exactly. And a further difference is on Malcolm Bonnet's blog, it refers to a telephone number, which is 860209. And that's the phone number to White House Farm. And on Jeremy's, it gives his number, which is 88645, which is the number at uh, Head Street in Goldhanger. People have said over the years, because further down on Bonnet's log, there is information underneath all the information about Neville Bambay, his address, his daughter Sheila, 26, has got hold of one of my guns. There's then another entry that says, message passed to CD, that's Chelmsford, by the son of Mr Bamba, after the phone went dead. That is a further detail from after Jeremy's call. So the initial information on that log refers to Neville's call and the extra bit, because this was a rolling log. So as we've said, that continued throughout the morning. Bonnet's log began at 3.26am when he was first given information by West about Neville Bamber's phone call. And his log didn't end until 15.40. So throughout the morning, as events were unfolding at the farm and he was getting radio and telephone messages, they were added to his log. And so therefore that explains why when Jeremy made his call 10 minutes after his father, that that's recorded on Bonnet's log as a continuation of information. And you can see it's a continuation because further down, uh, it's got the time uh, 0356, where GPO checked phone line. So you can see that this is a sequential recording of separate events. Exactly, Philip, as he unfolded throughout the day. Another matter of interest is on Malcolm Bonnet's log. It records the car seven which is referenced as CA7, was sent to the scene at 3.35am. That is a full minute before Jeremy phoned the police. So immediately following Neville's call, we now have the evidence that PC West contacted Witten Police Station at 3.30. And I shall read to you how we know that. So the evidence that we've got in relation to these two telephone calls and the two times when we can now prove that PC West contacted Witten Police Station. The first one is provided in the witness statement of PC Saxman, who was stationed at Witten. And this statement dated the 23rd of September 1985, in which he said, about 3.30am on Wednesday the 7th of August 1985, I was on duty at Whitton Police Station in the company of Police Sergeant 36 Buse and Police Constable 1509 Mail. When I received a message over my personal radio from Chelmsford Police Station. So PC Saxby is absolutely assured he received information over his radio at 3.30am. So therefore this can only relate to the telephone call that had been received by Neville Bamba at 3.26am. In a different statement, this was made for the Dickinson Inquiry 
um, PC Mail gave evidence as follows. 03.37 a.m. approximately. We received a telephone call at the police station. The officer, PC West, at Chelmsford Control was on the phone and told us that he was relating information to us and still had the informant, Jeremy Bamber, on the other telephone. So PC Mail is confirming that Jeremy was on the other telephone line to West when West was in conversation with Saxby at Whitton at 3.37am. But West stated at the trial that Jeremy had been on the telephone for approximately one minute prior to this call to Whitton. And as this was timed at happening at 3.37am by PC Mail, that can only mean that Jeremy's telephone call was made at 336 so therefore, this is another way that we can prove there were two telephone calls as West contacted Whitton Police Station on two occasions at 3.30 to notify them of Neville's call and at 3.37 to notify them of Jeremy's call. Clearly, two phone calls were made. And it was obviously essential at trial from the police's perspective that, that West did agree that the call he'd taken, uh, and at this point, obviously, everybody only had knowledge of one call, which is, is why the other one uh, just sort of disappeared. Uh, it was important to them that West agreed that he had taken this call, supposedly from Jeremy, at 3.26, because, uh, as Yvonne said, you can't send a car out to deal with an incident before you know about it. But at trials, West proved strangely reluctant to agree that he'd read, uh, he'd misread the clock. Uh, and he was given five opportunities by the defence uh, barrister Geoffrey Rivlin to do that. Uh, and it's quite uh, interesting just to read uh, the short extract from the trial transcript where he, he basically refuses to agree that he uh, misread the clock. Uh, Rivlin asks him, as regards the clock in the control room at the police station, is it accurate? To which West replied, yes, it is. Are you sure about that, said Rivlin. West replied, it has on occasion been inaccurate, but on very few occasions. He then refers to a colleague who'd given a statement that uh, the clock had been inaccurate on the night in question, uh, and West confirmed that he was aware of this colleague. And Rivlin went on to say, would you agree with this, that the control room clock will rarely show an accurate time? And West specifically replies, I would have to disagree with that. And West asked him, uh, sorry, Rivlin asked him again, you disagree? And West confirms, yes, I disagree. So in all of those occasions, West is just basically refusing to accept that he misread the clock, which obviously undermines the story that the, the police were telling at the trial. And in it's fact, just ridiculous, isn't it, Philip? I mean, even DSI Ainsley, who was a senior investigating officer at the time, actually wrote a memo uh, the day after West gave his evidence. And this memo was to Chief Superintendent Harris. And in it, he says, he states about uh, the lack of respect that West showed for the judge. But he also says that West gave the appearance of not knowing his evidence and had to be reminded by defence counsel of the content of his statement. 
Overall, his outward appearance was spoilt by his lack of respect for the court and his obvious lack of preparation for the occasion. Yeah, so, which, is, which is very telling in that uh, Ainsley thought that he should have prepared his evidence just instead of actually just recounting what happened. Well, if you're telling the truth, why do you need to practice your evidence, Philip? I mean, yeah, that's just absolutely. ridiculous, isn't it? Absolutely. But clearly West was well aware that he was skirting around the edges of uh, perjury here. Um, in fact, you could say that he was perjuring himself by omission in that he hadn't given the whole truth, as he'd sworn to do, by not mentioning Neville's call. So exactly. he was clearly very aware of what dangerous ground he was on. Exactly. And from uh, the recent television series, West, for the very first time, spoke on camera about this. And he actually said, if Malcolm Bonnet had received a call from Neville Bamber, he would have told me. Well, no, he wouldn't, because Malcolm Bonnet didn't receive a call from Neville Bamber, Mr. West. You received the call from Mr. Bamber. You received the call from Neville at 326 and from Jeremy at 336. And it's a very simple act of deception to hide a singular piece of paper, which is what Essex Police did in order to disguise the fact that Jeremy had a cast iron alibi. Yeah, I mean, that the lack of that C1 record of, of Neville's call it is one key reason why Jeremy's been sitting in prison for the last 36 years. If that had been available to the defence or, or to the jury, none of this would have happened. Exactly. But it's interesting as well, when it was challenged with the CCRC in 2010, the only response they made to seeing both the call logs was the time issue was sorted at trial. They addressed not a singular one of the anomalies or anything. And we couldn't go back with that. We were then prevented from going back with that evidence, even though there were all these differences on the logs until we found fresh evidence. And the fresh evidence has come in the form of the statements of PC Mail and PC Saxby, who confirm two calls were made because they were contacted at 3.30 and at 3.37, obviously regarding two separate and different phone calls. And also the, the, the CCRC were very flawed in saying that the matter had been sorted out all that had happened was that Judge uh, Drake ordered the jury to accept that the call was made at 3.26. So any of the anomalies or any of the uh, denials by West that he'd misread the clock, he just said, well, you are to take it that the call was at 3.26, full stop. Exactly. And that was the end of that matter as far as the Crown were concerned. Because that was the only way the prosecution case stacked up. Because if there had been a call at 3.36, everything else they were saying was uh, clearly false. But we also know that um, the calls made between the police stations and calls received were actually recorded. Uh, on his statement written in September 1985, Malcolm Bonnet actually said, as a matter of course, all radio and telephone messages are recorded on audio tape as an accurate means of recording. Now, this is very interesting because we've approached um, the CCRC numerous occasions and Essex Police to ask for the recordings of these calls that were made to West and the calls between West and Bonnet. 
And we've always been told they don't exist anymore and that the tapes were only retained for a month and were then recorded over. Whether we believe them or not, we don't think so because we've got documentation to say that copies were made. But as yet, we haven't had these recordings disclosed to us, but the CCRC have been asked again to try to obtain these. So, but it's also very interesting that we now have the evidence that even though the police said the recordings were um, recorded over after a month, that that is not the case, that we now know those um, recordings still existed well over a month after and we relied upon by uh, police officers making their statements. But first we need to talk about um, PC West statement of the 9th of August, which Philip's going to tell you about now. Yeah, there's one other interesting aspect to um, West's trial testimony. Uh, towards the end, he mentions the statement that he, West, gave on uh, the 9th of August. Uh, and Jeffrey Rivlin says, well, I, we don't have, as the defence, a, a copy of this statement. Uh, whereupon West volunteered to leave the court and go and find a copy of it, which which he did, uh, no doubt to the extreme annoyance of uh, Mike Ainsley. Anyway, when he, he came back, they started discussing this uh, 9th of August statement. Um, and it turned out that it was a very abridged version of what had happened, because Clearly, this was made only two days after the event, so they would have been fresh in uh, West's mind, particularly as this was such a huge yeah. case, been given national coverage and was on the TV every night. So it's, it's not something he would have uh, forgotten playing a small part in. So obviously he would have recorded the fact that he, he'd taken two calls, one from Neville, one from Jeremy. But whoever typed up this uh, version of his original handwritten statement clearly uh, applied a fairly rigorous filleting process to it because all reference to uh, Neville's call had had disappeared by the time the the final version uh, of this statement emerged. And of course, we don't have the handwritten version of that. We've only got the typed version. And so that could have been typed up at any stage. We know from other witness statements that they were altered, that things were omitted when they were typed up. So we don't know when that was typed up, even though the date on it is the 9th of August. Yeah, absolutely, because that's one of the the, the broad issues that bedeviled this case, the fact they were given permission by the Solicitor General to to produce composite statements, uh, which meant that they could, in effect, edit them and as they did, edit out all the things that didn't fit their particular narrative. But Rivlin's questioning of West about this statement obviously put, put him on the spot that, um, you know, well, why he was asked, why did you give such a brief uh, recount of what happened in, in terms of telephone calls on that evening? Um, and he really couldn't give an explanation. He, he sort of waffled around the subject and, uh, you know, tried to just say, well, this was just a very brief uh, initial account of, of my role in, in what happened. Uh, but we believe, as Vivon said, that the, the original handwritten statement would have been far more detailed and would have made reference to both calls. Uh, and in well. fact, he, sorry, just to, he, he went on to make um, a further statement on the 13th of September that was a lot more detailed, which Yvonne will tell you about now. 
Exactly, he did. And the 13th of September statement, he uses actual quotes, what he said, he said to Jeremy, and that Jeremy said to him. Now, these are in quotation marks. The only way he could have used quotes was, we believe, if he had the recording of the call and he was listening to it as he wrote that statement, which then undermines Essex Police's assertions that after a month, these recordings were recorded over. So because this is well over a month later. And so, you know, it's just the whole, the whole thing of it just doesn't add up whatsoever. And one of the things that Rivlin questioned him about uh, during the, the, the trial was why he hadn't written the fact that uh, Jeremy had told him, West, uh, that he'd initially rung Witham Police Station. Uh, and this highlights one of the other things that, that many people have said is, even if you accept there were two phone calls, why did neither Jeremy or Neville ring 999? Ah, but Philip, we now have the answer to that. We do, yes. We certainly do. So in his witness statement dated the 15th of August, Mail, one of the officers at the scene, said that Jeremy said that he had tried to ring Whitton but couldn't get a reply. So Buse also gave similar evidence in his statement about what Jeremy had said. So it's almost been a little bit of a, a questionable incident. Um, you know, why is Jeremy saying he rang Whitton and, and everything? And why didn't... Neville or Jeremy ring now, now, now. But first of we'll discuss about ringing Whitton. So we now have fresh evidence on this. In 2010, Buse did an interview with Eric Allison. And during this interview, he inadvertently admitted something very interesting. And he said, the thing with the phones that night, as far as I'm aware, Amber tried to phone Witten Police Station and would have been without phoning now, now, now. At that time, Witten Police Station would not have been manned because I was out with a couple of PCs. The calls were automatically being routed to Chelmsford Police Station, which was a divisional station, Witten being a subdivision of Chelmsford. So the fact that calls were automatically transferred from an unmanned police station to Chelmsford, which is where West was stationed, was also confirmed in an email from um, a representative from the Essex Police Museum to us in response to an email in 2017. And they said the procedure was that the phones were switched through to a 24-hour station, usually the divisional headquarters, if the station was unmanned. So this is proof in and of itself that even if Neville rang with them, which we believe he did, and even if uh, Jeremy rang with them, which he told the police initially that he did, those calls would have been automatically transferred because the station was unmanned, they would have been transferred to Chelmsford. And who was taking the calls at Chelmsford? PC West. Yeah, so the, the, this is one part of the explanation as to why they didn't ring 999. 
Uh, and in Neville's case, I think that the reason is pretty obvious. He, he was a magistrate on the Whitton bench. All the police officers at Whitton would have known who he was. And Whitton was the nearest police station. Uh, and I think that the fact that that course of action of ringing Whitton was the sensible one uh, can be proven by the fact that the first cars were sent out to assist with the incident from Whitton. Exactly. So that was the nearest help. And that's why he rang, rang that particular station. And even had they rang nan nan nan, the likelihood is that the cars would still have been dispatched from Whitton Police Station because that was the nearest one to White House Farm. Yeah, and also, uh, as we've mentioned in other podcasts, um, Neville w- was a very private person. Um, if this incident had been sorted out you know, without any uh, bloodshed, uh, he would have liked to have kept the whole thing quiet. And dealing with police officers that he knew personally from his experience on the bench would have made it much more likely that any uh, any, any trace of the incident uh, would have been kept confidential. Exactly. And there is another issue where we know that two phone calls were made. I don't want to discuss it too much at this moment in time, uh, because it is fresh evidence and it is in the submissions, but we can prove from a police document that they did actually destroy documentation which referred to uh, calls from Jeremy's house and from my house farm. So basically, it's explained on the document as British Telecom extracts of calls from Malden 860209, which is White House Farm, and British Telecom extract of calls from Malden 886645, Jeremy's call. We know that those um, extracts of calls were destroyed, and this evidence has been sent to the Criminal Cases Review Commission as firstly proof that there was further proof that there was two telephone calls made, but also proof in the Essex Police have gone pulled out all the stops to try and destroy the existence of these two telephone calls. And common sense would suggest that those records must have contained itemised details of, of calls made from White House Farm, because w- what other relevant information could BT supply? The fact there was a line at White House Farm, that, that was not in dispute. The only thing that was in question was what calls were made from that phone on that evening. Um, exactly. So that, you know, j- just thinking about it logically would suggest that those must have been details uh, of Neville's call to Jeremy. Absolutely. Well, it goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's just proof. But we also know that this isn't the only underhand actions Essex Police were up to, because there were eight different versions of the log written by West, the C1 log recording Jeremy's call. Eight different versions of this have been disclosed to the defence. Now, if it was a genuine call, there should be a singular version, maybe with one photocopy or carbon copy. But there certainly shouldn't be eight different versions of that log. We know they're different because the, the spelling mistakes on the logs. So not only is it spelling mistakes, 
on the spelling mistakes of those spelling mistakes. And so why were the police recreating a log that was supposed to be an official document, which then they did falsely and contained spelling mistakes? So we've got even additions to the log that can be seen on some of the versions and not on others. The, we have got um, a forensic report. We sent all, all the versions of the log to a document analysis forensic expert. We didn't tell him what we'd found. Um, we let him make his own conclusions. And he came back to us with a very detailed report regarding all these anomalies, including the differences in time, the additional evidence on some of the logs that wasn't on others, and also the different spelling mistakes that were made on these logs. Essex Police have never offered an explanation of why this was done. There shouldn't be any need for the logs to have been manipulated in this way. The jury certainly didn't know that there were multiple versions of the same C1 log. And besides that, when we asked the CCRC to obtain the original copy of the C1 log. So, because we don't know from the eight copies we've got, well, which is the original? We don't know. These are just photocopies that we've been supplied with. So we asked the CCRC, please go and obtain the original version of West Log. And the CCRC came back to us and said, unfortunately, Essex police are unable to locate it. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> stretches credulity a touch too far, doesn't it? It certainly does. It certainly does. And obviously the other document uh, that's key to the whole scenario that uh, the CCRC need to get disclosure on is, is the C1 log of Neville's call, as, as we mentioned before. Uh, because if they do get that, then uh, that is the end of the matter. There, there is no doubt that Jeremy is innocent and will be exonerated. Absolutely. So and just, also just, the recordings. I mean, if you can get the recordings, fantastic. Yes, so, ab- absolutely. So, so just to summarise the, the points we've made here, I think anybody who looks at these two um, different logs, and, uh, and obviously the key point to bear in mind is that jury never saw the C1 log, so they didn't have the advantage of being able to compare the two. But if you do... So that was, that was um, what, we, what we refer to as Jeremy's call, isn't it? Just to clarify for people. Yes, this is the one uh, headed uh, 0336. That, that's the C1 log for, for Jeremy's call. But if you look at the wording, the description, every aspect of that record of that call and compare it to Bonnet's log, you will just see that it is blatantly apparent that they are describing, Bonnet's log is describing two separate calls. There is no doubt in my mind about that. And another thing to support that, um, which we haven't discussed, Philip, is the fact that Essex Police timed the route on a bicycle between Warehouse Farm and Jeremy's Cottage. So they could, the fastest they could do it in daylight on a man's bicycle, not a sit-up-and-beg lady's bicycle, which they said Jeremy used to cross over ploughed fields and along a very dangerous seawall in the dark of the night. 
as it's police conducted this experiment in daylight on a man's bicycle and the fastest they could do the route between White House Farm and Jeremy's Cottage was 16 minutes. The town, four different routes. Now, why? Were they trying to get the Jeremy to be able to get from White House Farm to his cottage in Goldhanger within 10 minutes so that they could then assert Jeremy made both these telephone calls? Because I absolutely believe that's the only reason why they timed the routes. Had they been able to get Jeremy from White House Farm to his cottage in Goldhanger, I am convinced that they would have said, Jeremy made this call at 3.26, pretending to be his father, and Jeremy made this call at 3.36, pretending that his father had wrong him and given him this information. When that timing didn't work, very simply, all Essex Police needed to do was hide the C1 log that West took of Neville's call. That's all they needed to do. Yeah, and I think you're right, because they, they spent a disproportionate amount of time try, trying to make it possible to do that route in 10 minutes. And there, there is no other logical explanation of, of why they should devote such time and resources to doing that, because the, the timings in the case, whilst important, were, were not crucial. But clearly here, the timings were crucial. And if they could explain the two calls with, for that reason, then that would get them out of a tight corner, because the fact that there were two calls, if Neville had been the caller, meant that Jeremy was innocent without question. Without question. And the evidence that we have submitted to the CCRC in relation to this is very robust, very comprehensive. And we're hoping that this time they will see that there were two calls made. This is Jeremy's alibi. Jeremy is not guilty. And that's the only way I believe that they can they can address this. Yeah, we, we trust that the CCRC will write the... Uh, final chapter uh, of this sub-story of the, the whole case uh, and uh, that will show that Jeremy is totally innocent. Absolutely, Philip. Well, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss this issue. I My hope pleasure. that it's a little bit clearer now uh, to the listener about what distinguishes the two different calls and that we have the evidence that two calls were made. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And make sure you check out the website and join our Facebook group. Also, follow us on Twitter and please retweet. And we'll see you all again very soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Philip. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to do something to help Jeremy Bamber, then sign our online petition to the Home Secretary for the disclosure of case documents still withheld by Essex Police. Visit www.change.org and search for Jeremy Bamber. And don't forget to share the link with your friends and family.